0: Hello, and welcome to the Wheel of Crime podcast. This podcast is ran by two ladies who play games, mumble profanities, and laugh way too often. Also, this podcast does cover topics of sensitive nature, and as such, listener discretion is advised.
1: Hello. Hello. And welcome to another festive episode of the Wheel of Crime podcast. My name is Jen. And my name is Emily. Yes, it is.
0: Uh, we're feeling more festive by the week. Uh, I was just recently looking into uh, doing like the orange slice thing where you like string oranges up on the wall. And then I remembered that I have cats and they get into everything. And I'm like, you know what? I'll save that one. Maybe maybe for somebody else in a different house that's not mine. I'll do that in
1: maybe. Fair. I started doing that in twenty twenty and honestly, really fun, early festive. We'll probably do it again this year. Mm,
0: very nice. See that's the thing, is like uh, finding new ways to be creative about my my festive cheer. Uh I woke up the other day and I was singing um Felice Navidad. <laughs>
1: And, and Andrew was like, this is much too early for me. And I was like, Feliz Navidad. See, it's bizarre for me because growing up, I swear to you guys, this woman, Emily, was a Grinch. I'm still I a Grinch. A little, little bit. was <laughs> feeling so festive. I literally had the freaking antlers and reindeer nose on my car. And yeah. she was like embarrassed to be driving with me. She's like... <laughs> It's too festive. I hate it. Meanwhile, me and her mom have matching antlers on our car.
0: Literally, you and my mom have been on the same page for, like, festive cheer since the beginning. Uh, I I still have a little bit of the grinchiness in me, though, I won't lie. I'm just trying to, like, reinvent it in my brain to be, like, my brand of Christmas. Because I think my issue is I just have a, a strong aversion to things that are tacky. And there's so much about Christmas that like is super tacky, so I try to like shy away from most of that, and then I just end up shying away from the whole holiday
1: but that is fair and valid, but honestly, I feel like you can you know like there's lots of different Christmas aesthetics, so you just gotta find the one thing, that's yeah. right for you, you know I'm
0: embracing the uh the uh what's it? It's, like, a mixture of, like, you know, have you seen those things where it's, like, here's the two main Christmas aesthetics and it's, like, one where it's, like, you're on my mom's version where it's, like, tree full of stuff, lights everywhere, and then there's the other one where it's, like, just a green tree with, like, white lights on it and, like, nothing else and maybe, like, a white rug. Uh, I'm trying (laughs) to find somewhere in the middle because on one hand, the the yeah. one is like okay, but at this point it's just a tree with lights, right? And then on the other one, I'm like, this is overwhelming. There's so much stuff in here. So I'm like, somewhere in the middle, where I'm like, you know, like fun stocking, tree that the cats won't eat. This feels good. <laughs> Let's keep doing this.
1: <laughs> we we love a minimal Christmas gal who's putting in, you know, sprinkles of festive in her apartment.
0: Exactly, just like a little a little poof here, here in each corner, just enough that it still fits in my storage closet at the end of the
1: year. A touch of Christmas, if you will. Yeah,
0: exactly, uh, and I mean, besides that, is there anything that you've been doing to kind of get more into the the cheer of the holiday? Your your um... bells have slung and your <laughs> halls are decked and your and your Rudolphs are red nosed and ready to
1: hit the sleigh ride. I don't know. I'm just. <laughs> I mean, honestly, complete uh, disclosure, I did put up my tree in November. So, it was at the end of November. I'll clarify that. I waited until almost American Thanksgiving to put it up right before. That's longer than me.
0: I put mine up the day after uh, Remembrance Day, but I have a good reason for it. Uh, So, one of my cats associates winter time like what snow on the ground with christmas it's mr fig and as soon as snow hits the ground he starts begging at the closet every day for me to bring out the christmas tree weird i know it's so weird i didn't realize that's that's what was going on because it has been happening over the last like few years and i was like weird like why is it that every time the snow falls he really wants to get into this closet and every single time i let him in he pulls out the christmas tree so this year, what I did is I pulled it out early because normally I put up with, like, him scratching at the door until, like, like early December-ish. And I put it out this time, nothing. No scratching at the door or anything.
1: She says as she removes a cat from the vicinity.
0: Well, because she was trying to walk on the keyboard. And I'm like, listen, we cannot engage in this kind of feral behavior. I'm just swimming in cats here. But like I said, ever since I pulled it out, no problems, though. So obviously... Uh, that must be a part of the correlation where he's like, uh, tree comes down when snow hit ground. And that, and those are the rules.
1: Them's are the rules. Yeah. Honestly, I would have put mine up earlier, but because we have a, a very small little, a little, uh, place that we live, we've been storing our Christmas decorations at my parents' house and, uh, mm, they very yep. kindly brought them to me a week or so after or like a few days after remembrance day so then uh, pretty much went up right after that that's pretty good then i never thought to use
0: my parents as like a place for storage (laughs) it's a good idea you know what
1: we gotta do what we gotta do over here (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i won't be in this province much longer so it's only an option for a limited time and honestly i'm gonna utilize it while i got it
0: Hey, that's totally fair. I'm with you on that one. Uh, Well, then, all right. Well, now that we've, like I said, talked about how thickly our our halls are decked and all that, we should get into our wheel of questions for today's episode.
1: Yes, let's kick it in. What's your favorite Christmas story? I, I love myself a good, uh, you know what? I don't really know. (laughs) But I'm going to go with Frosty because he feels kind of cursed to me. And I do love spooky things. So we're going with Frosty. As your and favorite. because in Christmas with the Cranks, which I have watched probably like 11 times. I'm not, we're not going to talk about it, but I've watched it too many times. There's a very iconic scene where Dewey from Malcolm in the Middle goes, free, frosty, free, frosty. So honestly, iconic, frosty forever in my heart because of that.
0: Nice. Uh, That just reminded me, (laughs) (laughs) that just reminded me of how I completely forgot about this. My mom makes me watch a Christmas movie with her every year. So I've also probably seen it about... 11 times but for whatever reason I always block it out it's um I I can't remember the name of it because she usually just already has it in the dvd player and ready for when (laughs) whenever I'm there and she's like "Ooh, look what's playing on the television we should watch it um but it's like the one where it's like a man who's trying to have a perfect Christmas and then his like redneck cousins come in and like pump their sewage tank into like the street and there's like a cat that gets electrocuted under the sofa and national like, lampoon's
1: a... christmas vacation
0: that's it the national lampoon's family christmas vacation or whatever the fuck it's called I wa- i've i watched that one a bunch of times too because it's my mom's favorite but for whatever reason i never retain anything from it i'm like mm, yes funny
1: christmas <laughs> that is my partner's favorite christmas movie So, I, that one's also on in our household a lot.
0: Love that for us. Um, I think my favorite Christmas story is, uh, so I, I grew up with the, um, oh God, what are they called? Uh, whoever created, like, whatever the company is that created, like, Claymation, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, I grew up watching all of those ones. Um, Mm -hmm. so, like... I think my favorite Christmas story is actually I don't know if this was like made by them or if this is like an adaptation, but it's like one where um like Santa isn't Santa yet, but he his he, his name is like Chris Kringle and he's raised by elves in the woods and then he falls in love with like a school teacher. And he's like, you know, I like, don't
1: think I've seen that one.
0: I have to show you it. <laughs> My parents just rebuy everything. It's like a couple of years ago where it's like a compiled DVD collection because we used to have these all on VHS. And uh, the the lady he falls in love with is like Miss Jessica. And they end up getting married and living with the elves and making toys for all the kids. And there's like an evil mayor named Burgermeister Meister Burger.
1: Mm. <laughs> you know what this sounds like exactly what i would imagine would be your favorite
0: yeah it's either so it's a tie between that one because i watched that one like a bajillion times when i was a kid or the other one where it's like heat miser and cold miser and i know which one you, you i know you know which one i'm talking about because i made you watch it with me i think like four years ago it's like i'm mr ice christmas i'm mr snow Do-do-do-do.
1: oh i remember that but i I can't think of what that's
0: called. Basically Santa gets sick and he said I it's I think it's called Santa Claus is Coming to Town or something. But like basically Santa gets sick and he says, "Fuck Christmas." And then everybody around the world's like, "What do you mean? I won't get any presents. This is terrible." So then they like so the Mrs. Claus, I think, takes over and she's trying to convince like uh snow miser to let it snow uh for christmas and heat miser to be okay with like not having it be like stupidly hot so that it can snow for christmas and like all these other things Hmm.
1: yeah like it sounds very familiar but i just i can't think of what what that is called i don't know
0: me either i'm gonna go with santa claus is coming to town for my own sake but i would say one of those two i really like those
1: ones (laughs) Well, whichever listener can email us and tell us what movie that is, we will give you 500 imaginary dollars <laughs> Fictional in the dollars. astral plane.
0: Yeah, you'll you'll get 500 spirit dollars in the astral plane. <laughs> 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 uh, truly, though, I know this could take me like one Google search to figure it out. But like for now, I'm going with Santa Claus is coming to town for the one name and then the other name... I genuinely have no idea.
1: <laughs> it's a mystery. That's a the mystery spooky for... part of this episode, everyone.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. The spookiest part for sure. Uh, all right. Well, let's spin for our next question. Have you ever had anything scary happen on Christmas? Like to
1: yourself? I don't. I don't think. I can't think of anything specific that was scary that happened on Christmas. Okay. I mean, I feel like the scariest thing that happened to me, like, uh, in the holiday season as a child was when my dad used to try and prank me uh, about my Christmas presents. Like, I was a kid who, like, I don't really like surprises, so I would always, like, try and guess what my gifts were going to be, and so my dad figured this out and he didn't want me to guess. So I remember one year specifically, I really really wanted a pink Motorola Razor cell phone for Christmas. That's all I wanted in life. I thought I would be like the coolest baddest bitch and guess what I was? But um <laughs> so he got that for me for Christmas and he wrapped it all up and then he was walking up f- up the stairs from downstairs to our main living room area and he pretended to trip and like he dropped the package and then he shook it and it made noise like it was (laughs) broken and so I was like panicked I was like no my gift what the heck and he's like oh no it sounds like it's broken like this one was really fragile whatever and so I was like so sad Christmas morning comes. I unwrap that baddie, and there's like broken light bulbs in there, which were decoys. And then I open it, and it was my pink Motorola Razor phone. But yeah, we almost had a Christmas disaster.
0: Your whole family is diabolical. I've never had that experience growing up, where like somebody would like actively prank me. Never. <laughs> <laughs> like, I truly thought that was, like, a fictional thing from television. Like, when, when like, those, like, shows would come up on, like, uh, YTV or whatever, where it's, like,
1: prank masters. I was like, yeah, they do that. I mean, you know, it just built different, I guess. What about you? What was your scariest Christmas encounter? <laughs> uh,
0: So, I'll, so I, mine is actually from last year, okay? Christmas Eve. Um, but I will preface saying quickly, though, that I also did once have, like, a Christmas present disaster once. I had a friend, and this would have been, like, literally when we were in middle school. Uh, you might remember this. Give me a gift. And I couldn't remember, I can't remember if it's, like, for Christmas or my birthday or something. But all I remember is opening it up and there was, like, a carrot and a single sock in there.
1: That was 100% for your birthday.
0: Okay, I couldn't remember. I was, like, I know, because, like... October and December are so close to each other that in my brain, sometimes I'm like, what happened when, uh, but
1: traumatizing. <laughs> I remember that I was there and it wasn't even like a prank where she was like, ha ha ha. Here's your actual gift. That <laughs> no, was, was the genu- gift.
0: I got legit. <laughs> yeah. I got legitimately a carrot and a sock, not even a pair of socks. It was a single sock. And I was like,
1: do I put it on the carrot? what do i do with this a used sock if i'm remembering correctly too yeah it had a hole in it i couldn't even wear it
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyways uh so that that just reminded me of that but no uh, my actual scariest christmas thing that has ever happened to me okay last year christmas eve i'm working the day and i'm working with my mom and we were traveling up to do some work, like, for, for like, a full, like, 10-ish hour shift um, mm-hmm. at this place that was, like, um, so, like, on a normal summer drive, it would take you about, like, an hour and a half, two hours to get to this place, okay? Uh, and you have to take Highway 2 because it's around Edmonton. So, we're driving up, but here's the problem. The day before, so December 23rd, freezing rain hit the roads. And we were driving in my juke on Highway 2, Christmas Eve, after it had freezing rain the day before. So the way up was, like, fine. Like, there wasn't too, too many people on the road, but, like, it was so slippery that I went legitimately sideways At one point, and we had to, like, reroute ourselves through the countryside because there was, like, such a huge accident. It was, like, a 25-car pileup on the road. So we ended up, like, going through the countryside. I, like, slipped in and out of the shoulder, like, probably about 18 times. Just on the way there, okay? Then freezing rain happened again during the day, okay? While we Mm -hmm. were working. So then nighttime comes because for our American listeners and people who aren't from... Alberta, Canada, uh, the sun goes down fairly early. It's usually, like, around 5 p.m. around Christmas time. Um, so it's pitch black outside, okay? Can't see shit. Roads, cars are lined up bumper to bumper of people who are traveling for Christmas. And they're slipperier than they were that morning. My mom, who I'm driving, by the way, that adds extra stress just in case you didn't know when you're driving a relative. uh, Because if I kill her, my dad would never forgive me. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like, I'm carrying precious cargo and I got to make it back in time for Christmas. We've got some serious problems on the table here. So um, we're like driving down there. I was going 60 kilometers an hour on the highway, white knuckling it. Because anytime I went over 60 kilometers an hour, I would start fishtailing. And like I said, bumper to bumper on the highway. Can't do anything. We get up uh, past... um, uh, who, what's the small town like that bleeds into Edmonton coming from the south? Leduc. Leduc. We get just past Leduc and nothing but cars in the ditch. There's a cars half on half on the road, still running people traveling back and forth between all these vehicles there's like probably about 10 different emergency vehicles there like just trying to like figure out like who they're supposed to be talking to. There's like A car, there was a car that had fully spun and gotten stuck in the ditch with its headlights pointed like directly at us, like straight down the highway. And then one right behind it that also was still running, but it had gotten stuck on its bumper like this and it was pointed at the sky. So it looked like a beacon heading into the sky. And I literally, when I tell you, it took me three hours to get home (laughs) because I literally was like, I will not not be responsible for ruining Christmas so I literally like like I said white and I go like like the whole way and my mom's like you're such a good driver and I'm like I think (laughs) I think I'm going to die and I we like got back and I'm not even kidding like she had to open my door for me because I had like tensed my muscles for so long I, like, had to uncurl myself from the steering wheel and literally just, like, flop (laughs) out of the car. Oh, no. (laughs) Like, it was so bad, Jenny. I woke up the next day and I was, like, my full body was sore from, like, my eyebrows
1: down to my toes. Not even kidding. Brutal. For our listeners who are not from here, this drive usually takes like about an hour, 15, maybe an hour and a half on a bad day. So a three hours is like double what it usually takes. Mm-hmm.
0: Double not good. Scariest thing by far that's ever happened to me. I would take 10 ghosts easy back to back than ever have to live through that experience ever again
1: yeah the roads in general were really bad last year i when we came down for christmas that night on december 24th last year i remember being like this is not great
0: no and then uh i think to the issue that we had anyways was the continuous freezing rain at least between like our place of origin and your current place of origin uh (laughs) Or no, your current place that you live in, not your origin. Um, Like, the weather's usually a little bit nicer. Like, windy, yes, but, like, nicer in general. So, like, usually it just will be rain rather than freezing rain, but.
1: Yeah, I, last year we got just dumped with, like, snow and rain and everything. Like, I think on December 23rd. And I had finished a really intense show where I worked literally every single day in december i'm not even kidding like i didn't get a single day off and like so then driving home after that on like december uh 23rd or whatever i remember being like the roads were so garbage i was going like probably 20 kilometers an hour on the highway home Mm -hmm. and i was just like i might die i'm so tired (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah i remember that because uh i think i saw you for it was like christmas day you you stopped in and your eyes were just these giant black holes in your head and i was like you look like you haven't slept in like a year and you were like i haven't
1: (laughs) zombie genuine zombie and then i got so sick right after christmas because i think my body (laughs) was just like shutting down
0: yeah <laughs> i don't even doubt that but yeah no i think that by far has to be the scariest thing that's ever happened to me because i still think about it like i'm, I'm so traumatized from driving on like roads that were that bad that if there's even like the hint the hint of like a similar experience i'm like you know what's not even that important I could stay in who needs cars <laughs> not me I want places to be.
1: I'm 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 gonna be at home. You do what you gotta do, but I'm gonna be at home.
0: Yeah, like if you want to know where I am, super easy, in my house, <laughs> nowhere else.
1: <laughs> Not on the roads.
0: Yeah, like literally anywhere else but on the roads. Like, like easy, easy.
1: Oh god. Truly. But
0: yes. Um. Well, I feel like we talked about that one for a while, but yeah, no. So scary. But no, let's spin for our next question.
1: Our final question. No,
0: we got two left. Oh. <laughs> I love it when you look at me with just bafflement on your face. It really feeds my spirit.
1: Let's hear our second last question then.
0: Okay. Uh, what's your least favorite Christmas story?
1: Um, Jack from... <laughs> I'm just kidding Uh, Trying to think I Don't like The annoying ones I mean that's fair The annoying ones are annoying I hear <laughs> I'm like trying to think because I feel like I just surround myself with the things that I like and I avoid everything else as to, um, you know, that's
0: fair. Um, for me, this is super easy, uh, just cause I have five younger siblings. So I'm very acquainted with the ones that I don't like. Uh, my least favorite Christmas story is 100% without a doubt, Frosty the Snowman. Fuck that snowman. I hate it. That claymation one where there's like the stupid man who's like, I gotta take Frosty's hat because it's made of magic and all these kids are like, no, we love him. I'm like, I would rather be doing anything else at this moment by now. Anything. Give it to me. I'll take out the garbage. I'll like, (laughs) I'll like run a lap around the house. I would rather do anything else than watch Frosty the snowman ever again.
1: In my defense... I have actually never seen that, and my only exposure to Frosty the Snowman is Christmas with the Cranks and the movie Elf, so I am not well acquainted with Frosty. (laughs) Okay, I'll watch it, but not actually watch it with
0: you for Christmas this year if you want, because I refuse to partake in it, but I will put it on, and you can absorb what you want. Uh, It is awful. I hate it and also it was like my brother's like my 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 like next closest brother uh his absolute favorite one growing up for some fucking reason i think it was to spite me if i'm gonna be honest i think he knew that i hated it and so he wanted to play it all the time for that reason or he just genuinely loved it i really don't know the true answer but i cannot cannot be a part of it drives me bananagrams Hate it. That's fair.
1: That is totally valid. As the youngest sibling, I feel like I really didn't have to endure much of the, like, traditional ones because by the time, like, I got around, my siblings were older and they were not interested in that stuff. So Mm -hmm. the exposure was limited. That's
0: fair. So then, uh, do you have an idea then on which one is your least favorite then? Other than the annoying ones?
1: (laughs) No, now I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick to my guns. The annoying ones are annoying.
0: All right, I'll Fuck take em. it. Fuck them. The ones I can't agree. remember. Terrible. I don't remember any of them either, but the annoying ones are annoying and we don't like them. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. Fuck those ones. All
0: right. Time for our actual last question. All right. Um. What's your favorite Christmas movie specifically? Obviously, this can be like any of them that have been made that are like holiday-ish.
1: So, which one's your favorite? I have a few. Uh, I would... Okay. Well, okay. I have a few, but they're all in kind of different categories. So, uh, my favorite Christmas horror film is Better Watch Out. If you're looking for a good one, go check it out. It's super good very Home Alone-esque. My favorite, like, classic Christmas movie is probably Elf or Home Alone. And then my, like, guilty pleasure Christmas movie is definitely Christmas with the Cranks. Not because it's good. But just because it's so bonkers and Tim Allen gets hung at the end of the movie. So what's not to love?
0: See, I really thought you were going to say, not because it's good, but because it's really bad. Literally.
1: <laughs> Literally.
0: <laughs> it's so bad. It's somehow turned good. I'm not sure how that happened.
1: And my my favorite christmas movie that's not a christmas movie but pretends like it is is the christmas bunny and listen here's my my preface with this movie when uh my partner and i were living in bc together we only had netflix so options were limited for streaming at that time and there was a movie on netflix called the christmas bunny it the first like first the first scene takes place in christmas but the rest of it is like a January movie, and there's it's just like the most chaotic, crazy, wacky movie I've ever seen in my life. They took it off of Netflix, so i I bought the damn movie so I can rewatch it every year. It is not good, but I love it. There's a bunny birthday party that will make you cry. I'm just saying, okay,
0: okay. Interesting. Uh... (laughs) Not the answer I expected, but nice. Good one. (laughs) What's your favorite Christmas movie, Em? Okay. Uh, mine is, um, I think, like, I'll I'll add a few categories, too. So, So, for, like, a family Christmas movie, I have always really liked The Polar Express. Um it's just a really beautiful movie to watch and you know all that stuff the aesthetics are there uh and then my other one um for like uh oh yeah I also really like watching Home Alone just because like that's my brand of humor like so funny to me uh some people are like Dumb and Dumber is the funniest movie ever I'm like nah man Home Alone gets me every time (laughs) uh and then I think uh, for, like, my third option, which is, like, a personal favorite, um, or at least, like, one that I really liked watching when I was a kid, I always really liked watching The Little Drummer Boy. It's by the same people I was telling you about earlier for, like, Christmas stories and stuff. Um, But they, like, do an adaptation of The Little Drummer Boy, and it's, like, it's kind of, like sad but like in a nice Christmassy way i don't know like i really liked it when i was a kid i was like i want to watch the little drummer
1: boy cute i've never seen that one but um
0: i don't know yeah i don't think i've ever showed it to you either because uh when my parents had them the little drummer boy was one that we had that we weren't able to get it on dvd it was just a vhs special and then i'm pretty sure my one sibling ripped out all of the tape sad as one does when they have little people around vhs tapes which one day people won't even know what those are anymore so that's fun
1: nah they'll make a comeback they'll bring back the nostalgic crowd
0: oh you're totally right it'll be like a vintage thing where like now we have record players and then they're gonna come out and they're gonna be like oh look a vhs a vhs player for your home (laughs) with all these like little things and like oh look you can go get your vhs's at the record store and we're gonna eat it up
1: i I think it's I think it's on its way to making a comeback in the same way that cassettes did.
0: I hope so. That's one thing where, like, uh, I actually really liked VHS's, even though you had to rewind them at the end. I thought they were kind of cute. It gives a little je ne sais quoi to the experience. Uh, But yes, that concludes our uh, Nightmare Before Christmas questions. So are you ready for the description?
1: Yeah, take it away, Em. So the Nightmare Before Christmas,
0: uh, the film follows the misadventures of Jack Skellington, Halloween Town's beloved Pumpkin King, who has become bored with the same annual routine of frightening people in the real world. When Jack accidentally stumbles on Christmas Town, all bright colors and warm spirits, he gets a new lease on life. He plots to bring Christmas under his control by kidnapping Santa Claus and taking over the role. But Jack soon discovers even the best laid plans of mice and skeleton men can go seriously awry. crazy yes uh, I have done the Christmas description of what Christmas is two years in a row now so I was like I can't do that Uh, and nightmares are pretty self-explanatory I think I've also done that one before too so I was like Nightmare Before Christmas let's just keep it on brand
1: (laughs) exactly but with that lovely description, would you like to take it away with your story, Em?
0: I would love to. So I am gonna tell you about these basically uh I was thinking of something nightmarish and Christmas themed, right? So, uh what I found for you is some Christmas ghost stories. Alright. Ooh, I know, which I haven't done before. So I am also excited. Let's get to it. <laughs> so the first one is at a place called Pencarte Castle. The grand Pencarte Castle in Lothian, Lothian, Scotland is an impressive isle dating from the 16th century. One famous story of the castle is of a beggar named Alexander Hamilton. Not, not Alexander Hamilton, the American one from the musical Hamilton. I don't know American history all that well. Not that guy. Completely different person, different time, different place. <laughs> Just to clarify.
1: Unrelated. Completely unrelated. But maybe related. We don't know.
0: Yeah, maybe it's an ancestor. Who's to say? So this Alexander Hamilton, one night in the 17th century, rapped on the door of the great house, seeking food and shelter. He was told to clear off. And so from there, he cursed the family. And a few days later, the lady of the house and her daughter died of a mysterious illness. Hamilton was then tried as a witch, brutally tortured and executed in Edinburgh. His ghost is said to haunt this mansion that would have been Pencart Castle. So, at Pencart, on a cold, dark Christmas night in 1923, family and friends were gathered in the music room singing Christmas carols, and a carved wooden family crest was witnessed by everyone to creak slowly, Lean forward away from the wall, pause, and then return to its former position. That's kind of crazy. Right? So that's the thing. It's not like like a spectacular Christmas ghost story, but it would be very unsettling if I was singing Jingle Bells and watched a giant wooden family crest float away from the wall and then just reattach itself afterwards. I'd be like, mm. I don't think I like that.
1: Not a fan. That's going to be a no from me.
0: Right. So that's that one. So the next place I'm going to talk about is a place called San- Sandringham House. So the Royal's famous Norfolk Bolt Hole was once described as the most comfortable house in England. But at Christmas time every year, ghosts are supposed to lurk around the corridors of this vast Victorian residence. It is said to begin at Christmas Eve and last for a few weeks. And in the 20th century included tales of classic poltergeist activity in the servant's areas of the house, mysterious footprints, self-closing doors, lights turning themselves on and off repeatedly, and there was also said to be heavy breathing heard from the empty rooms in service corridors, and Christmas cards found to have moved unaccountably. At one point, servants were refusing to enter certain rooms alone, and a sinister phantom sack that breathed was said to have been seen by one footman. Both King George V, uh, don't know what Roman number that is. I can never remember. And King George VI, different George, died at Sandringham as well.
1: Crazy. The two King Georges.
0: Double George, double scary.
1: That's like the scariest part is that we have two Georges.
0: That's what I'm saying. And around Christmas time, that just makes it worse.
1: Unrelated, my story also has a George. So there's three Georges in this episode. At least. That's
0: that's three too many Georges. Even one George is too much sometimes. We're george out. Already. Let's hope there's not any more that comes up. We'll have to start keeping a tally.
1: (laughs) Yes, everyone who's listening should keep a George tally for us. They
0: can take a shot every time somebody named George appears. We'll make this into a drinking game.
1: Amazing.
0: Right? Um, So after that, we have Mattingly Hall. So... The two-door Mattingley Hall near Cambridge is now a conference center, but was once the center of a vast estate owned by the prominent Hind family. Sir Francis Hind, who was an MP during Elizabeth I's reign, when expanding the hall, he knocked down a church in the nearby village of Histon to provide building materials. This was nearly 40 years after the death of his mother, Lady Ursula, who, according to the legend, turned in her grave at the destruction of the church, which uh, could happen, and has been reputed to haunt the hall ever since, her ghost stalking the corridors at night and wringing her hands in anguish. Every Christmas Eve, the ghost of Lady Ursula is said to walk between the hall and the church, or what's left of it, in Histon, although nowadays she would have to cross a motorway to get there as uh, times have changed. Um, So just to recap quickly man's building house knocks down church says i take stone from church to build my house uh mother buried dead goes no gets up haunts the house
1: i mean it is interesting now that like if you if you're a person who believes that like these ghosts from like ye days is still around they have a whole different land to haunt she's crossing a freeway
0: that's the thing like uh it, it makes me wonder about um i haven't talked about this on the podcast yet i was kind of waiting to see um to see what i could get for like this particular type of ghost but it's like those stories of people who are like driving on the motorway and they see somebody on the side of the road who's not actually there like you know those types of ghost stories
1: mm, yeah
0: they have like you're a lady enough. of the lake Yes, like that kind. And then there's been actually a lot of stories that have come up since then uh, or like are kind of similar all over the world of people seeing something similar where they'll be driving along the road and they'll see a lady on the side of the road and then either pick her up, drive a certain way, drop her off and she disappears or they like stop on the side of the road to pick her up and she's not even there anymore. Poof, disappeared. Spooky. Spooky. All right. Next, we have 50 Berkeley Square. The Tower of London has often been described as the most haunted building in London. But what about the capital's most haunted house? For many years, that macabre accolade belonged to 50 Berkeley Square, an imposing Georgian uh, townhouse in Upmarket Mayfair. In the 18th and 19th centuries, the Grand Gaff was linked to mysterious deaths. With residents and guests at the house apparently seeing ghosts and then being found dead, their mouths and eyes agape in frozen terror. One such encounter with the killer ghosts occurred in 1887. It was Christmas Eve and two sailors, Bloomden and Martin, were on leave in London. They trawled through the gloomy, foggy streets through the cold evening looking for lodgings. They happened upon 50 Berkeley Square and were pleased to find a room there for the night. The murderous haunted house had previously claimed a victim in the room in which they stayed, and Blunden felt uneasy in the darkness and couldn't sleep. In the middle of the night, he frantically woke up Martin in time to see a dark specter looming towards them. Blunden went for a weapon, and the apparition darted towards him. Meanwhile, Blearyard Martin escaped to the street and found a Bobby on the beat. Which, a Bobby is a policeman. Yes. Uh, Copy that. (laughs) The man... Then returned to the house with the cop, and to their horror, they saw Blunden at the bottom of the stairs dead. His neck was broken, and his eyes and mouth were wide open as if he had
1: died in fear. That's horrifying. Imagine walking in on that and just seeing a man, like, in that state, and you'd be like, What the fuck happened here? That's one of those things where I feel like, uh, like, your
0: spirit would just get snatched out of your body for a hot minute because you wouldn't know how to process it, and then just, like... You know, like, (laughs) go right back in there. So then you could be like, you see this shit? You see this shit?
1: Please tell me we're both seeing the same thing here and I'm not going cuckoo bananas.
0: Yeah, right? Oh, boy. Um, But yeah, no, apparently dying of fear, though, is a real thing that can happen to people. But it's not the fear itself. It's basically, uh, you get such a flood of, um, like, uh, endorphins, I guess. That it can actually do funky things to your heart and prompt a heart attack is what happens most of the time.
1: Awesome, something else to worry about when at late at night, right?
0: <laughs> In my bed late at night, when I think deep thoughts about spooky Christmas stories. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so then, so then, uh, we have uh, one that I've actually talked about before if uh you remember the brown lady uh rainman hall yes so actually one of those stories occurred on christmas so i was like i'll include it uh but basically in the remote depths of norfolk surrounded by tall trees lies a manor house rainman hall in the chilly december of 1835 the house was full of guests and residents for the christmas season two of the party got a little bit more yuletide spirit than they had bargained for for one night A Colonel Loftus and Mr. Hawkins were engaged one evening in a long chess battle that went past midnight, which just sounds invigorating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Love
0: that for them. Uh, And then, upon saying goodnight in the landing, the two men saw a strangely dressed woman standing in the bedroom door uh, of the lady of the house. The woman appeared to be wearing a centuries-old brocade and coif, and after walking along the hallway a little way vanished. When Colonel Loftus encountered the Phantom, another night he darted after her, coming face to face with a ghost that resembled a noble woman, but also had an unearthly, hellish glow emanating from her and and then she had no eyes. Uh, When the colonel told the owners of the hall about the apparition, far from laughing, they simply stated that he had seen the brown lady of Raymond, uh, witnessed by many others, including author Captain Marriott, and then... uh, just a little plug-in for anybody who didn't remember the story I was talking about. Um, it's uh, about a famous 1936 photograph of the Hall's Grand Staircase that claims to show the uh, mysterious spectral lady. So that's a fun throwback. Um,
1: yeah. And if you're curious and want to see the photo, you can head over to our Instagram. It's up. Emily covered the full Lady in Brown story for one of our Halloween episodes. So... you haven't listened to it you should because it's quite interesting
0: sure did and then i have one more christmasy group uh grossed story ghost story for you all right
1: (laughs) you meant what you said
0: (laughs) yeah uh uh, (laughs) so uh this one is from a place called bramber sussex so Bramber Castle in West Sussex was known for centuries owned by the powerful Browse family, the Lords of Bramber. In the early 13th century, William, the fourth Lord of Bramber, fell out with King John. Big mistake. John then pursued William across England, Ireland, and Wales, seizing his lands and then capturing his family. Uh, one version of events has it that William's children were held as hostages by the king and eventually had starved to death in Windsor Castle and according to local legend the ghosts of the children are reputed to stalk the roads of the village of Bramber on dark nights dressed in rags and chasing um, and accosting passerbys for food village tradition has it that at Christmas time the ghosts of the children a boy and a girl can also be seen mournfully watching over the ruins of their former home Bramber Castle crazy right and that concludes my little uh epilogue of uh christmas ghost stories for you uh, or one could say the nightmares on before and after christmas
1: i mean who knew that christmas was so spooky i did but emily didn't
0: <laughs> this is true uh either way, I'm very interested to hear what your uh, nightmare Christmas story is today.
1: I've got a good one for you today. So let me just get right on into it. All right. So, today I'm going to tell you about a man named George and his family, as we discussed.
0: All right. The 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 third George.
1: <laughs> We're talking about the third George today. You hear that guys at three shots? <laughs> yes. <laughs> get, get, get your shot glasses out. We're in for a lot of George. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, George Sauter was born in Tula, Italy in 1895, and he immigrated to the United States 13 years later with an older brother who went back home as soon as both boys had cleared customs at Ellis Island. So, him and his brother landed, and the brother was like, you know what? This ain't for me. I'm going back to Italy.
0: Uh... Yeah, I can see, I can see the, I can see why.
1: I could see the thought (laughs) process behind that. So for the rest of his life, George would talk a lot about why he had left his homeland. George eventually found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania, carrying water and other supplies to workers. After a few more years, he took more permanent work as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. He then started his own trucking company, initially hauling, filled dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal mines in the region. Jenny Caprini, a storekeeper's daughter in Smithers, who had also immigrated from Italy in her childhood, became George's wife. The Sodders settled outside of Fayetteville, which had many other Italian immigrants at the time, in a two-story timber frame house about two miles north of town. In 1923, they had their first child, business was going really well for George, and they became one of the most respected middle-class families around. However, George, as I mentioned, had really strong opinions about why he left Italy and all and what was happening in Italy at the time, and he was really not shy about telling people how he felt. And... He was in a community with a lot of other Italians who probably had their own views on things that maybe differed a little bit from his. So it, it it alienated a lot of people in the community. In particular, his opposition to Italian dictator Mussolini had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community. And in 1943, the last of the Solder children was born, and with the birth of their youngest, Sylvia, they had ten little kiddos running around, which is quite a large family.
0: I'll say, uh, even having just been from a family of six, that's a full house. I cannot even fathom having ten. Half of them must have been sleeping outside.
1: Must have. And by then, their second oldest son, Joe, had left home to serve in the military during World War II. The following year, Mussolini was deposed and executed. However, George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings with other people in his community. In October 1945, a visiting life insurance salesman got, came to their door knock, knock. And George is like, not today, fella. Get out of here. We don't want your life insurance. The salesman warned George that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed. So, um, I don't know what George said to the salesman, but usually I say, no, thank you. And they just walk away. But, um, feelings were had here.
0: I was going to say, that's some pretty strong beef to be having with someone. No kidding. Your house is going to burn to the ground. Oh, okay. (laughs) See you tomorrow. Yeah,
1: so apparently the salesman attributed all this to the dirty remarks that he had been making about Mussolini. Another visitor to the house who was seeking work warned George that a pair of fuse boxes would, would cause a fire someday. George was really weirded out by this conversation since he had just rewired the house when an electric stove was installed and the local electric company had said afterwards that everything was fine and safe so this seemed like a out of left field comment
0: it definitely is i would be feeling a little off afterwards about that too actually
1: So, in the weeks before Christmas, Georgia's older sons had also noticed a strange car parked along the main highway through town, its occupants watching the younger soldered children as they returned from school, and on Christmas Eve, 1945, the family was all at home celebrating the holiday together. The oldest daughter, Marion, had been working at a dime store downtown, and she surprised her three younger sisters, Martha, Jeannie, and Betty with new toys that she bought for them as gifts. The younger children were so excited that they asked their mother if they could stay up past what would have been their bedtime and at 10pm Jeannie told them they could stay up a little later as long as the two oldest boys who were still awake, which was a 14 year old Maurice and his 9 year old brother Louis, remembered to put the cows, to put in the cows and feed the chickens before going to bed themselves. George and the two oldest boys, John and George Jr., who had spent the day working with their father, were already fast asleep. After reminding the children of those remaining chores, she took Sylvie upstairs with her and they went to bed together. The telephone rang at around 12.30 a.m. and Jeannie woke up and went downstairs to answer it. The caller was a woman whose voice she did not recognize, asking for a name she was not familiar with, with a sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. Jeanie was told the caller had reached a wrong number, later recalling the woman's weird laugh, and she hung up and returned to bed. As she did, she noticed that the lights were still on and the curtains were not drawn, which were two things the kids normally did bef- when their parents went to bed before them. So, Marion had fallen asleep on the couch in the living room, and Jeanie assumed the other children, who had stayed up later, had just gone back up to the attic where they slept. She closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and then went back to bed. Around 1am, Jeannie was woken up once again by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof, with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. So it sounded like something was, like, rolling off the roof. After hearing nothing further, she went back to sleep, which couldn't be me. I would be freaked the fuck out, but...
0: Yeah, no sleep to be had. I would just be laying there with my eyes open like this, like, dinner plates the whole night, being like, what's gonna happen next?
1: (laughs) What was that? It's too dark inside. After another half an hour, she woke up again, smelling smoke when she got up she found that the room george used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and fuse box genie woke him and then in turn he woke his older sons Both parents and four of their children, Marion, Sylvia, John, and George Jr., escaped the house. They yelled frantically to the children upstairs but heard no response. They could not go up there as the stairway itself was already aflame. John said that in his first police interview that after the fire, he went up to the attic to alert his siblings sleeping there. Though he later changed his story to say that he only called up there and did not actually see them efforts to find aid and rescue. The children were unexpectedly complicated. The phone didn't work. So Marion ran to a neighbor's house to call the fire department and a nearby driver on the road had also seen the flames and called the fire department, but it didn't go through because they couldn't reach the operator or because the phone there had been broken or something. So eventually someone was successful in reaching the fire department from another phone in the center of town. George, who was barefoot, climbed the house outside the house's outside wall and broke open an attic window, cutting his arm in the process. He and his sons intended to use a ladder to the attic to rescue the kids, but it wasn't in its usual resting spot against the house and couldn't be found anywhere. A water barrel that could have been used to extinguish the fire was outside frozen solid. George then tried to pull both of the trucks he used in his business up to the front of the house and use them to climb into the attic window. But weirdly, neither of them would start despite him having used them literally the day before. So randomly, they wouldn't start. Ladder gone, phone lines out, uh, barrel frozen. It seemed like every method they could use just like went to shit. Mm
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Odd. So frustrated, the six sodders who had escaped had no choice but to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next 45 minutes. They assumed the other five children had perished in the fire, and the fire department, low on manpower due to the war and relying on individual firefighters to call each other, didn't respond until later that morning. Chief F.J. Morris said the next day that the already slow response had further hampered his inability to drive the fire truck, requiring that he wait until someone who could drive was available. The firefighters, one of whom was Jeannie's brother could do little but look through the ashes that were left in the solder's basement by 10 a.m morris told the solders that they had not found any bones as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house that burnt down according to another account they did find a few bone fragments and internal organs but chose not to tell the family It has also been noted by modern fire professionals that their search was courtesy at best. Nevertheless, Chief Morris believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Chief Morris told George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state's fire marshal's office could conduct a more thorough investigation. However, after about five days, George and his wife could not bear the site anymore so he bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site with the intention of converting it into a memorial garden for the lost children. Which, I get being like really upset as a parent, but that just seems like irresponsible to me.
0: Yeah, and it's always a weird thing too because like people will say oh well everybody grieves differently. Yes.
1: Um... But something about that doesn't really sit well with me. Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird reaction to have, but definitely odd. So the local coroner convened an inquest the next day, which held that the fire was caused by an accident that was from faulty wiring, which is weird considering the earlier comments that George had been told. Among the jurors was the man who had threatened George that his house would be burnt down and his children destroyed in retribution for his anti mussolini remarks. So, one of the people who came to the conclusion that this was just an accident from faulty wiring also threatened him that he was going to burn his house down and uh, kill his kids. So, seems weird to me, but whatever.
0: Yeah, an oddly specific threat followed by an oddly specific accident.
1: Yes, Very. (laughs) <laughs> so, death certificates for the five children were issued on December 30th, which is real quick turnaround from December 25th. Oh, yeah. The local newspaper contradicted itself, stating that all the bodies had been found, but later in the same story reported that only part of one body was recovered. George and Jeannie were too grief-stricken to attend the funeral on January 2nd, although their surviving children did. Not long afterward, as they began to rebuild their lives, the Solder family started to question all of the official findings about the fire. They wondered why, if it had been caused by an electrical problem, the family's Christmas lights had remained on throughout the early stages of the fire. Didn't make a lot of sense when power should have gone out. They found the ladder that had been missing from the side of the house on the night of the fire at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away a telephone repairman told the solders that the house phone line had not been burned through the fire as they initially thought, but cut by someone who had been willing and able to climb 14 feet up a pole and reach two feet away from it to do so. A man whom neighbors had seen stealing a block and tackle from the property around the time of the fire was identified and arrested for this. He admitted to the theft and claimed that he had been the one to cut the phone line, thinking it was a power line, but denied having anything to do with the fire. However, no record identifying the suspect exists and why he would have wanted to cut any utility lines to the solder house while stealing a block and tackle a block away has never been explained genie said that in 1968 if he had cut the power line she and her husband along with their other four children would have never been able to make it out of the house Jeanie also has trouble accepting morris's belief that all traces of the children's body had been burned completely in the fire many of the household appliances had still been found recognizable in the ash along with fragments of the tin roof. She contrasted the results of the fire with a newspaper account of a similar house fire that she had read about around the same time that had killed a family of seven skeletal remains of all the victims were reported to have been found in that case. Jeannie burned small piles of animal bones to see if they would completely combust. And none of them ever were. And an employee of a local crematorium she contacted told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 1090 degrees Celsius for two hours which is far longer and far hotter than the house in the fire ever could have been
0: yeah because that's the thing is that like it's such a like a misconception that like if you light somebody on fire that all evidence disappears because like even crematoriums have to like when they incinerate people it's at like an ungodly temperature like a regular
1: fire doesn't get that hot and like even a house fire doesn't get that hot and like literally they it's like so hot and their bones still remain so the fact that they're like yeah Mm -hmm. nothing is left is very sus
0: right and even in cases where like say um they use an accelerant or something like um i was uh reading a case the other day about where a guy had doused a a lady in gasoline thinking that that would help with like uh the burning process even then it still doesn't get hot enough to get rid of like bones and stuff it just ends up like charring them at the most and also your teeth are left behind yeah. unless you have the right tools for it it's not possible
1: Not possible. So, the family's truck's failure to start was also considered. George believed they had been tampered with, perhaps by the same men who stole the block and tackle and cut the phone line. However, one of George's son-in-laws told the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he had come to believe that the solder and his sons might have, in their haste to start the trucks, flooded the engines. So that is possible and I think probably like part of the chaos that was going on that morning. For sure. Lots of stuff to unpack. Some accounts have suggested the wrong number phone call to the solder house might have also somehow been connected to the fire. However, investigators later located the woman who had made the call and she confirmed it had been a wrong number on her part. As Spring approached, the solders, as they had... As they said they would, planted flowers in the soil, bulldo- bulldozed over the house, and Jeanie tended it carefully for the rest of her life. However, further developments in early 1946 led the remaining Sauter family members to believe that their instincts may have actually been right and the five children didn't die in the fire after all. Evidence soon emerged indicating that the fire had not started in the electrical fault and was instead set deliberately. The bus dri- the driver of a bus that passed through Fayetteville late Christmas Eve said that he had seen some people throwing balls of fire at the house, which would explain that noise she was hearing on the roof, right? Like a Molotov cocktail or something. Yeah. A few months later, when the snow had melted, Sylvia found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball-like object in the bush nearby. George recalled his wife's account of a loud thump on the roof before the fire, said it looked like a pineapple bomb, or hand grenade, or some other type of device used in combat. The family later claimed that contrary to the fire marshal's conclusion, the fire had started on the roof, although by then there was no way to prove it. Which is probably another reason why you shouldn't just dig over the site, but whatever. Other witnesses claimed to have seen the missing solder children themselves. One woman who had been watching the fire from the road said that she had seen some of them peering out of the passing car while the house was burning. Another woman at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston said that she had served them breakfast the next morning and noted the presence of a car with a Florida license plate in the rest stop's parking lot as well. The Sodders hired an investigator named C.C. Tinsley to look into the case, and Tinsley informed the family that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his anti-Mussolini statements had been on the coroner's jury that ruled the fire an accident. He also learned of rumors around Fayetteville that despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the Ashes. Morris had found a heart, which he later packed into a metal box and secretly buried. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister, who in turn confirmed it to George. So, George intensely went to Morris and confronted him with this news. Morris agreed to show the two where he had buried the metal box, and they dug it up. They took what they found inside the box to a local funeral director, who, after examining it, told them that it was in relatively fresh beef liver that had never been exposed to fire so it was like a weird lie (laughs) later more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had afterwards admitted the box with the liver had indeed not come from the fire originally he had supposedly placed it in there in the hope that the solders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed died in the fire. On one occasion, George saw a magazine photo of a group of young ballet dancers in New York City, one of whom looked like his missing daughter, Betty. He drove all the way to the girls' school where he demanded repeatedly to see the girl himself and he was refused. George also tried to interest the FBI in investigating what he considered a kidnapping. Now, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters, saying, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. If the local authorities requested the bureau's assistant, he added, then he would, of course, direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to do so. In August 1949, George was able to persuade Oscar Hunter, a Washington, D.C. pathologist, to supervise a new search through the dirt at the house site. After a very thorough search, artifacts including a dictionary that had belonged to the children and some coins were found. Several small bone fragments were on earth determined to have been a human vertebrae. The bone fragments were sent to Marshall T. Newman, a specialist at the Smithsonian Institution. They were confirmed to be a lumbar vertebrae from the same person, and since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of the individual should have been 16 or 17, Newman's report said. The top limit of age should be about 22 since the centra, which normally fuse at 23, are still unfused. Thus, given the age range, it was not very likely that these bones were from any of the five missing children since the oldest, Maurice, had only been 14 at the time.
0: All right.
1: (laughs) Emily's looking. She's thinking with her big brain. Literally
0: nothing about this makes any sense to me. Whatsoever. Also, who on earth would bring beef liver to the police and be like, mm, yes, this heart that I found? Who does that? <sighs>
1: i have no idea it's so weird so newman, newman added that the bone showed no sign of exposure to flame further he agreed that it was very strange that these bones were the only ones found since the wood fire of such short duration should have left full skeletons of all of the children left behind The report concluded that the vertebrae had, instead, most likely come from the dirt that George had used to bulldoze the site. Later, Tinsley supposedly confirmed that the bone fragments had come from a cemetery in nearby Mount Hope, but could not explain why they had been taken from there or how they came to be at the fire site. The Smithsonian returned the bone fragments to George in September 1949, and according to its records, their current location is unknown. The investigation and its findings attracted national attention, and the West Virginia Legislature held two hearings on this case in 1950. Afterwards, however, Governor O.K.L. Pattinson and State Police Superintendent W.E. Burchett told the Sodders the case was hopeless and close it at a state level. The FBI decided it had jurisdiction as a possible interstate kidnapping, but dropped the case after two years, following fruitless leads. With the end of official reports to resolve the case, the Sauter family did not give up hope. They had flyers printed up with the children, offering a 5000 reward, which they soon doubled for information that would lead to ha- having the case settled. For one or all of them. In 1952, they put up a billboard on the site of the house with the same information. It would become a landmark for traffic through Fayetteville on US Route 19, and the family's efforts soon brought another reported sighting of the children after the fire. Ida Crutchfield, a woman who ran a Charleston hotel, claimed to have seen the children approximately a week afterwards. She said, "Quote, I do not remember the exact date. The children had come in around midnight with two men and two women, all of whom had appeared to be of Italian descent." When she attempted to speak with the children, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned and began speaking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. She recalled that they left the hotel early the next morning. Investigators today do not, however, consider her story credible because she'd only seen the photos of the children two years after the fire Five years before she came forward and George followed up leads in person, traveling to areas from where the tips had come. A woman from St. Louis, Missouri, claimed Martha had been held in a convent there. A bar patron in Texas claimed to have overheard two people making incriminating statements about a fire that happened on Christmas Eve in West Virginia some years before but none of these proved significant. And when George heard later that a relative of Jeannie's in Florida had children that looked similar to his, the relative had to prove the children were his own before George was satisfied. He's coming. He's, he's willing to take anyone down, even his own relatives.
0: At least, like, with this, so we can be pretty sure that George has no idea what's going on. Because, like, on one end, he's, like, he's, like, uh, mourning the deaths of his children and then using like every spare moment that he has like following these leads so like something happened and he he has no idea he has no clue what's going on me
1: either george that makes three of us for sure (laughs) exactly So, in 1967, George went to Houston area to investigate another tip. A woman there had written to the family saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night after having too much to drink. She believed that he and Maurice were both living in Texas somewhere. However, George and his son-in-law, Grover Paxton, were unable to speak with her. Police there were able to help them find the two men she had indicated, but they denied being the missing sons. Paxson had said years later that doubts about that denial lingered in George's mind for the rest of his life. So, he never quite believed their denial. He was kind of like, I think those might have been my sons.
0: Yeah, and that would be really hard too, especially because, like, there is that whole, like, not knowing part of, of, like, what happened. Because obviously, like, the bones aren't there. So, it's like, where are the people whose bones... Should be there.
1: Exactly. Another letter that they received that year brought the Sodders what they believed was the most credible evidence that at least Lewis was still alive. One day, Jeannie found in the mail a letter addressed to her, postmarked in Central City, Kentucky, with no return address inside was a picture of a young man around 30 with features strongly resembling Lewis's who would have been in his 30s if he had survived the family hired another private detective to go to Central City and look into the letter but he never reported back to the Sodders and they were unable to locate him afterwards so this private detective, gone okay I was about to
0: say like clarification being the P.I.
1: like is disappeared, disappear, he
0: never came back Hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Which is really fishy.
0: (laughs) There's been so much fishy business in this story, you're telling me. This is just making it fishier.
1: So the picture nonetheless gave them hope. They added it to the billboard, leaving Central City out of it and any other published information out of fear that Lewis might come to harm and put an enlargement of it over their fireplace. George admitted to the Charleston Gazette-Mail late the next year that the lack of information has been like, quote, hitting a rock wall. We can't go any further. He nevertheless vowed to continue, but said, quote, time is running out for us. He admitted in another interview around the time, but we only want to know if they did die in the fire. We want to be convinced. Otherwise, we want to know what happened to them. George Sauter sadly died in 1969, and Jeanie and her surviving children, except John, who never talked about the night of the fire except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on with their lives, continued to seek answers to their questions about the missing children's fate. After George's death, Jeannie stayed in the family home, putting up a fence around it and adding additional rooms. For the rest of her life, she wore black and mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former house. After her death in 1989, the family finally took the weathered, worn billboard down. Ooh, that's sad. Very sad. And, you know, it's crazy because you go to bed on Christmas Eve, your kids are having fun, they just got some new toys, and you're excited to wake up and have, like, a nice day with them the next day, Mm -hmm. and instead you're met with that whole situation and you never get closure.
0: Yeah and I can see too why like uh, the living children or at least the one son was like you know I wish they would just accept what happened and move on because like at that point you gotta have something to believe right like if you believe that your family's still alive then you would feel like you need to find them which is what the parents were doing but then on the other end it's like do you really want to spend your whole life looking for people who have yet to turn up and you never actually knew what happened to them because like for all we know they could have been like taken from the house killed and dumped somewhere and then and then you know all this stuff is just like invented business or it is actually them and they're still alive but maybe there's like something else going on
1: yeah and i mean george seemed to have some enemies in the area so people do crazy things and they get you know when they get weird ideas in their head sometimes they act and then everyone's fucked
0: Yeah. And the other part of it, too, is, like, uh, but if you have, like, a political opinion that's, like, very uh, against what most people think and you live in a smaller area, too, that's already putting a target on your back. So, you know, who's to say that, like, people in the area, like, don't know what's going on? Maybe they do. Maybe they just don't want to say anything, right? Yeah. It's a hard one. us versus them mentality.
1: It's a hard one because... Like, the kids did nothing, so they didn't deserve that.
0: Right? But then that's the thing, too, though, is, like, uh, with the us versus them mentality is some people will go to the degree where they, like, see somebody or a group of people as being so other that they're not even, like, like human enough to emphasize with. It's very interesting how, like, the psychology behind it works, but it's also very sad for stuff
1: like this, for sure. Exactly. But on that note, it brings us to the <laughs> the end of our episode. It's been a long one today. It
0: has been a long one today, um, which is kind of nice because uh, we usually balance somewhere between, uh, you know, the 30 minutes to an hour and a half. So sometimes you get a bite-sized episode to just munch on on your way to work. And sometimes you get a longer one to munch on your way to and from work.
1: You're welcome, <laughs> exactly. everyone. Exactly. But uh, <laughs> we will not be spinning the wheel for a story topic next week because we are going to do another listener episode so this is the final call if you want to submit a story go ahead if we don't pick yours we might save it for a later listener episode so just submit we want to hear from y'all
0: exactly and so with that uh if you liked listening to our episode today you can leave us a review on spotify apple podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts that kind of thing do help us with the algorithms and stuff like that so if you want to say a word and give us five stars that'd be greatly appreciated. Besides that, say you want to learn more about us and all that business, you can visit us on our website, which is www.wheelofcrime.com. And say, for example, you you heard something today and you want to add to it, or if you just want to send us a message about the show, you can email us, wheelofcrime at gmail.com, and talk to us there. We love listening to you guys. Um, We also have a patreon if you want to donate to the show that is uh, wheel of crime at patreon and uh, You know, we've got the different tiers and that kind of thing for anybody who's interested and lastly we have social media. I remember this time. We have our social media, which is Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok all at Wheel of Crime. And then of course uh (laughs) the Google Doc for submitting stories is also available on uh, our social media pages as well. You can click the link there and submit a story like we said anytime because anybody whose uh stories not selected for this upcoming Christmas episode we will be hanging on to them for future listener episodes. So any and all are welcome uh Christmas themed or not Christmas themed we love hearing from you guys.
1: Yes, and that brings us to the end of our episode. Uh, Okay, bye. Bye. I like your space buns, by the way.